From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to Epi 16 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Now, some of you are likely to be expecting that this episode of the show is going to be chock full of clips, which I sort of promised last episode. We will have a few more this time, but the fact of the matter is that I'm recording this edition of Suckatash while on Christmas vacation in Hawaii, so I'm actually about 2,400 miles away from Studio P and our executive producer, Joe Polino, which makes it really hard to put together a clip show. Instead, I'm going to be playing an interview with John Manfrolati, which I recorded when I was in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. John's a very funny comic and actor who you may know from his appearance on Everybody Loves Raymond, and more recently, Men of a Certain Age. Before we get to John, however, let's get into a few clips. First up is from one of my favorite podcasts to appear this last year, Affirmation Nation with Bob Duca. What do you get as a gift for the life coach that has nothing? Just listen. Greetings. Happy Monday to you. Just a few more days of Dukamis, as I like to call it. Many of you have asked to hear my Christmas list, and I will indulge right now. <clears throat> the following is the Christmas list for me, Bab Duke. Rite Aid cracked heel cream, a bottle of non alcoholic communion wine. Good night, bunion, bunion splint, and Vitagel corn wraps, both from Profoot. Gluten-free gingerbread mayo clinic, flannel sheets, rubber sheets, an adult-sized race car bed, a new tarp or tarp patch kit, size 11 and a half wet weather bread bags, the following DVDs, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, complete series, Marlo Thomas's chair aerobics, History Channel presents Ancient Aliens. Criterion Collection of Ordinary People featuring commentary by renowned family therapist John Gray. Kramer vs. Kramer action figures. Dr. Joseph Diabetic Foot Care Kit with Body Sponge. Pre-cut tennis balls for my walker. Isotoner Self-Stimulating Arthritis Gloves. Or Masturbation Mittens. A Neck Stretcher. Pill Organizer, Pill Crusher, The Pill Pushing Throat Stick by Pillwright, Almond Roca, Tosh.0 Season 1 DVD, I forgot to put that in the DVDs, Sure Grip Q-Tip Holders, Medicated Ear Spackle, Belly Button Lint Roller, Geriatric Umbilical Cord Deodorant, Expedition Grade Compression Socks, Tiger Bomb Pajamas, the Gatorade Electrolyte Patch, a 15 by 27 foot vision board, the How to Avoid Sudden Sniffing Death book on tape, headphones compatible with first generation Sony Discman, a new cremation urn, armpit mole remover scissors, a year's supply of macaroni and government cheese. International air filter for allergy sufferers. Panda dander sandals. A very long hug. 
Shamanic Truth Mirror by Terence McKenna. Jad Spurs. And finally, Nick Nolte's Super Absorbent Deep Depression Tissues. Now, this is only a wish list. I don't expect any of these gifts for real. But I would love the gift of your continued support. Take care. That's Seth Morris as Bob Duca. Lovely, delicious, bite-sized morsels of funny. Delivered Monday through Friday over on Earwolf.com. And also on iTunes, of course. Uh, Next up is a new podcast for us called the Wrong Foot Podcast. And uh, there's a pile of folks involved, so I'm not going to name them all here. But uh, they do a sketch-oriented podcast kind of podcast it seems from the samples i've been sent from them so uh here's a listen right now so what do you think honey i don't know what do you I think like it. you do yeah i do so so have you decided on anything i think we'll get one. Oh, very good sir i i think you'll really enjoy it it'll be our first it's a very good way to start your collection you know what Let's get to it. Two? Really? Sure. If we're going to collect these things, let's get started. One is not a collection. One is a sample. That's very good, sir. I might use that myself. exciting. Why not? You know? So then it's two. Two tats, please. Two tats. Two tats. Excellent. Let me just ring that up. Two tats. And that would be two tits. And how will you be paying? How much? Two tats comes to two tits. Two tits for two tats? Tit for a tat, sir. A tit for a tat? Yes, Yes, a each, tit? each tat is a you tit. You want a tit for a tat? Honey? That's crazy. That's, Honey, just that's, give him the tits. You give him the tits. I'm not giving him any tits. Let's I go. I understand. Honey. Let's go. We'll have to think about it. I understand. Can you hold these tats for us, maybe? I would need the deposit to hold the tats. Well, what would you need? I want tit. One tit to hold two tats? Yes. yes. Are you one coming? tit to hold two tats. Just a minute. What are you doing? Let's go. Take this tit and hold it. You want me to hold this yes. tit? Hold it. Let's go. Hold the tit. I'll hold your tit, but understand, if someone wants the tats, then I'd have to let your tit when go. I get my tit back. What's going on here? I'm, Is that I'm your just, tit? What? He's just going to hold it. You gave him a tit to hold? I thought we could think about it. This, Give her this back way. that tit. Just Give her to, back that tit. Honey, it is my tit. Is that right? It's just a tit. I see. Okay, fine. Here. Here, here's another tit. How many tats do you have? How many sure. tats do you have? You want tits? I've got tits. I've got tits all day Honey. long. I can bury you in tits. tits. Give me all your tats. Well, we do have special promotion. Oh, no, really? Yes, uh, sort of a baker's dozen. Buy 12 tats and the 13th is free. No tit for that tat? And it qualifies you for our frequent purchase program with advanced notification for the serious collector. Keeps you abreast of all you, the new tats. Did you hear that? Uh-huh. What do you think? It keeps us abreast? It keeps you be among the first to know. Uh-huh. Honey? They're just tits. They're just tits, right? Right. We said we'd never let a few tits get between us, right? right? Let's do it. Oh, honey. Will you take a check? Of course. Let me let me see something. I I might have to move a few tits around. You could check it with your phone. I right? think we got the tits to cover it. Last time I I checked, we had the tits. It, it is a lot of tits. What are tits for if you can't get what you want for them? Tats have consistently increased He's in value. Been eyeing those tats for a while. I could see you was a tat man when you walked in. What's that? He said he could tell you were a tat man when you walked in. What about when I walked out? I'd be lying if I said. 
I thought you wouldn't be back. Well, I, I guess. No I need guess. to explain. Tats do yes. that. Tats make people do things. With their tits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're we're good. We're good. We have the tits. We have the tits. Then we have the tats. Show me the tits. Show me the tits. <laughs> I'll make this out to tats for you. Yes. Twelve tits. Even. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No tats. No tax on tits. I mean on tats. No tax on tats. Here you go. I I guess you'll get a nice piece of tit for this, right? Well, it's a good day for all of us. I do appreciate your business. Uh, I do, really. Yes, thanks, thanks. You're you're welcome. I'll just write this up for you. You can pull around the back, and we'll get you loaded on your way. Here's my card. Don't All right. hesitate to call. Thank you. That's nice. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy your tat. I'm I'm sure you will. Okay. Have a nice thanks. day. He was nice. Yep. You want to make someone nice? Show him your tits. All right, so that's the Wrong Foot podcast, and uh, you can find more of them at thewrongfoot.net. Now, there's no the in it. It's just wrongfoot.net. Also, the show is on iTunes. I want to wish you and yours a very happy holiday, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or any combination of those faiths. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to Succotash, and especially love it when you pass the Succotash along to your friends. We're also looking to hopefully spread the Succotash around a little bit more in the new year. I've got some ideas for some live shows, some online merchandise, and maybe even some hookups with some of our podcasting friends both across the country and around the world. If you want to like our Succotash show page on Facebook or maybe leave us a review on iTunes, that would be very welcome. And if you've got a few extra bucks left after the holiday sales are over, don't forget that we do have a donate button up now at Succotash Show. Com. We are going to get to that interview with John Manfrolotti in just a few minutes. But before we do, let's grab a slice of Delicious Mediocrity, a podcast we've featured before on Succotash. They are out of Seattle, and here's a taste. Well, you're driving to work and you're feeling hungry. We'll get yourself some delicious mediocrity. Newt Gingrich. Yeah. Rocking Man, it up there. That guy winning, winning because one I, guy had just one affair. <laughs> all right, all right. Has anybody else? This is how I've been. This is I've I've been making this known that the GOP presidential race right now, all of them, the front runners, mm-hmm. they're all front runners. By the way, yeah. Because okay. at some point, someone knocks someone off like Mario Kart, and the next one's in the lead. <laughs> There, there is a presidential blue shell. Yeah. Like, as soon as you're in the lead. But I'm taking that metaphor. Please do. Please oh, do. Oh, I'm taking that to Twitter. <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, I, uh... Mike just I've now, I've, now be, I've now begun to, to call the GOP frontrunners the developmentally disabled Justice League. <laughs> because they all... They all stick together. All of them have a really bad superpower. <laughs> And they're all for really dumb shit, and they've all made the same mistakes. Like, they don't know where the Middle East is, you know. But everybody's like, oh, but they're heroes of some sort, right? Because they, they're all here. They're all, in, they're all on the television. But every time they open their mouth, they're like, I'll make uh, um, you Becky. Becky Stan. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, Becky Stan. Uh, um, hey, everybody. Uh, I just want to say I, 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 three things. One, I love my mom. Two... <laughs> <laughs> Two, uh, the Middle East is bad, and I don't know what the third thing is. Um, Something about Jesus. It's it's a Justice League where everyone's just the Wonder Twins. 
It's it's a League of Evil where they're all Solomon Grundy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Gleep. <laughs> they're yeah, all like Gleep, Gleep, Solomon yeah. Grundy, and Bizarro. <laughs> Me run country. <laughs> Today Sunday. Me no sex Everyone, woman. Like <laughs> Me no sex woman like pizza. And but Ron Paul is still Ron Paul, and he's like, "Hey, yeah. everybody! Hey, guys! Wonder Twin powers activate them all by myself. Okay, I'm gonna say I'm just a bucket of ice water. God damn it! <laughs> Did you see somebody uh, made a graphic? I wish I could remember the name of the website, and it was all Magic the Gathering cards themed for the current presidential uh, lineup, including a lot of uh, some people on the right, some people on the left. And they all had, like, powers and abilities and what happened when you summoned them, what didn't happen. My favorite one is there was a card that was called uh, Not Romney. <laughs> and that was a thing that you could summon. And it didn't have a picture. And it just had, the uh, like, a silhouette. Yeah. But it's, you know, a uh, black uh, outline and then white background. And then on the description, it said, no, despite the color of the silhouette, Not uh, Romney is almost certainly white. <laughs> He's he's in the middle third of the playing field, which is where you want to be. Oh, he's going to be the nominee. But There's no he's question be the about nominee, it. But yeah. that also means that Obama's going to get a second term. Because yeah. no, no one likes Mitt Romney, but no one hates Mitt Romney enough to be like, he's that guy that you want like you want to hang out with occasionally because he bothers you a lot. And you're like, let's hang out. And yeah. just, if I hang out with you for an hour, you won't bother me for a week. Right, but he's not the guy where you're like, dude, I gotta talk to you. You gotta come over. And let's hang out. I got, I got something I gotta share with you. Let's play a game together. Let's spend some time together. <laughs> he's not that guy. He's right. the guy you just want to go like, oh fuck you. But all right, you can hang out for an hour with us. <laughs> God damn it, Joe Henry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is he's he's every girlfriend's dad. Like he's like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty chill. I just got a few rules in my house. <laughs> but every other candidate is every girlfriend's creepy boss that you're kind of sure wants to fuck your right. girlfriends. <laughs> so it's like the guy who clearly hates you but is not going to fuck you up, or the right. guy that's going to fuck you up but acts like he likes you, and that's the difference. America, America, and he's extremely rich. He's so fucking mm-hmm. rich. What do you got? Eight houses now? Oh God! He, well, Jesus. I, there are no poor people running for president. And he's a Mormon. <laughs> And he's a Mormon. And no, he's a dude, Mormon. I've got to. I've got to be out of here real soon. I can't pay yeah. the sitter past nine. Yeah. <laughs> Third shift starts in about half an hour. So let's wrap this fucking debate up. Yeah, <laughs> guys, this money's coming out of my pocket. You know, I'd vote for that guy, even if I disagreed with literally all of his policies. That, that guy would be so good <laughs> if, like, his ads were clearly edited by him. Not even an iMovie, but like window, Windows Windows Movie Maker. <laughs> And then as president still holds down the day job, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, I'm just, gonna, this is only four years. <laughs> There's a sample of delicious mediocrity out of the Seattle area with Derek Sheen and Douglas Gale. Apologies to whoever else was on that clip. As I said, I'm cobbling this epi together while on vacation, and I've lost my notes from Mike, the show's producer, when he sent me the clip, so sorry about that. But it is funny, so there. Catch more at deliciousmediocrity.com. Also on iTunes, and we'll be back with John Manfrolati right after this. This portion of Succotash is brought to you by Henderson's Breakaway Trousers. For the first time available to the public, Henderson's Breakaway Trousers are the ideal solution for you, whether you are a man suffering from weak bladder syndrome or premature ejaculation. How many times have you been running late for that important business meeting only to find that your bratty bladder doesn't care about snaps, buttons, zippers, and belts. And who hasn't been on that date of a lifetime with that hottie that everyone wants to bang? You'd like to make a good showing, but 
Gosh darn it, those pesky spermatozoa want out, and they want out now. Friends, when you're sporting a pair of Henderson's breakaway trousers, you've got the confidence to know that you'll be down to nothing in no time at all. And before you can say, Jack Robinson, it's bombs away, and you're good to go. Originally designed for the military, the theater, and penitentiary, penitentiary, pe- jails, Henderson's breakaway trousers are available online and wherever fine pants are sold. Available soon in women's styles, too. That's Henderson breakaway trousers. And now back to more of Suckatash. All right, we're, good luck getting a straight answer out of me. All right, we're live. Well, we're not live. We're recorded. Uh, I would hope we'd be live. Otherwise, this is a seance. Here with John Manfrelotti. Nice name. to be here. Nice to have you here. Hershon uh, Hershoff. Uh, John is a, 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 a actor, a stand-up comic, a guitar player. Wow. You said actor with a question mark. Uh, What's bon, that bullshit all about? Bon vivant. <laughs> man, yeah, man, yeah, man about town. General Bon vivant. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here on your podcast there. Well, it's great to have you here, actually. Um, you know, we, we've known each other for a few years, and uh, we uh, get together every time I'm in Los Angeles, which is fantastic. I guess I couldn't avoid you anymore. <laughs> i got to get caller ID. And uh, I, I think this will be a great podcast for, uh, or a great interview for the comedy nerds uh, who kind of think they know everybody on the scene, and yet, unless you've been to either New York or Los Angeles, you probably have not, or Las Vegas, maybe, um, there's not a... Uh, a whole lot of you who've maybe seen John do stand-up. No, uh, unless someone's doing my stuff, and then you've seen my stuff. <laughs> That's right. Uh, when did you start doing stand-up? I started in February of 83. That's the... I actually go with February 12th, 1983, because that was the night that the owner of the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale said that, all right, you pass, you can hang out every night. Because I had gone like four or five Monday nights, I had an open mic. Yeah. And that was the date when he said I can hang out every night. So that's the date I go by, February 12th, 1983. Wow. Interesting. So you were in Fort Lauderdale at the time. Yeah, I was working for an airline at the time. Uh, I was a flight attendant, not gay, so stop looking at me that way and get, get your hand off my knee. Wait a minute, that's my hand. Hey, that's not my knee. Anyway, so... <laughs> I got laid off from that job, and I swear to God, I knew I could never do another nine-to-five job ever again after that, because the flight attendant job was so much fun. And I wasn't a nine-to-fiver anyway. Yeah. So I was working with my friend in a health food store. He was the manager, and he hired me as like an assistant manager, which I didn't know anything. But I was like a lion in a cage, I swear <laughs> to God. And then I heard about a Monday night open mic at the comic strip in Lauderdale, so I went down. And Had you ever done stand-up before? Here and there, on a dare over the years, way back in the 70s, friends said, hey, why don't you try stand-up? And I did like a thing at St. John's, because my buddy was a um, student council president at St. John's. Oh, okay. He set up a gig in the cafeteria for me. <laughs> I'll never forget this. First thing I got paid, it was $35. And I'd like to build a time machine and go back and machine gun that entire audience. <laughs> you know what they did? The way they set it up, the... The mic cord went through the audience to the back of the room, and I was in the front. And one of the student guys found the connection, and every time I would get to the punchline, he would unplug the mic, and the mic would short. 
Yeah, it was unbelievable hell, and I didn't do it again. And that was your first gig? Yeah. Oh, my God. First paying gig. Oh, my God. And then I tried it while I was working for the airlines, because I was stationed in Miami. Yeah. And the same thing, I met Al Romero. Do you know Al Romero? I don't know. We were in an acting class together, and he said, you're pretty funny, why don't you try stand-up? So I went down to an open mic, and I tried it, and I was... Wasn't ready mentally, you know what I mean? It was right after my father had passed away, and I, I wasn't ready. But I do remember this. Monday night, December 8th, 1980. It was an open mic night on Monday. I was waiting to go on, and right before I went on, the owner of the club walked up. It was me and another comic standing there, and he went, some son of a bitch just shot John Lennon and killed him. And then I had to go on stage. Not 30 <laughs> seconds later. Go, now here's the comedy of John Mayer. Yeah, it was. Yikes. So I, I, I don't even remember that set. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was brutal. But then I didn't do it again for three years. Wow. I just, you know, life got in the way, and I was traveling. And you wanted to honor the memory of John Lennon, clearly. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it was... It wow. Was, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. So when did you then move to New York? Because you really kind of got got your teeth into this thing in New York, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I moved back in April of 85. So I was doing it just, oh, okay. a, just about two years. I became the house MC okay. at the comic strip in Lauderdale. Then I did a few gigs along the way. And who was coming through Fort Lauderdale at that time doing um, stand-up? Guys like Glenn Hirsch, mm-hmm. uh, who else? Overton. Sure. I remember. I remember when I worked for the airline. I went to see a show. I wasn't even doing stand up, and Overton was okay. one of the comics. And I remember going because the other two guys I didn't think that were that funny. And I remember going watching Overton and going, "Yeah, that's what it's all about. This guy's good," you know. And even recognizing it early, and then meeting him later on was cool. But, um, so, uh, yeah, guys like that, George Calfa, Bob Woods, a lot of New York acts. Sam Kinison was first sure. starting out. He, okay. and everybody would be blown away by him. And I became very good friends with a comic that came through, Lou DiMaggio. Sure. Was in, yeah, you know. yeah. So, um, then I moved to New York in 85, did one-nighters all over Connecticut, and then finally got an audition for the Improv in Manhattan, which was the most nervous... I ever was really for any kind of stand-up thing. You know, what caused that? Do you think? What was the? Well, what the was improv the was so historic. Yeah, it was like the birth of kind of stand-up, and the you know the pictures on the walls of people who came through there, and it's like, oh my god! And then here I am on this stage. You had three minutes too. Three minutes was your. And, and uh, had you never been on the stage before? I'd never stepped foot on the wow. stage ever. Yeah. So I was really nervous, but I just, once I got up there, I said, look, you got to sink or swim with what you believe in. I did my thing. And Silva, the owner, uh, Silva Friedman, passed me right away. You know, she would make people come back more than once, but I was lucky enough. That was me knocking on wood. This is wood. I was knocking on my own woody. Um, so she passed me, and then uh, you know started working there, and then doing the other clubs. So it was pretty. So cool. what were you doing to get by in New York while you lived there? Were you able to make enough just doing one nighters and whatnot? To... Yeah, um, a guy named John Shula had. Hmm. He must have had twenty gigs in Connecticut, and another guy, uh, Balazos and uh, Rick Messina, had gigs. Sure. So I was, you know, driving from gig to gig every night, making... They normally paid the comics around 70 bucks. I would get 90 because I was the only one with a car. Oh, so you would drive the other acts. Yeah, we'd yeah. meet at the Improv or Catch or one of these places. 
and drugs. So I would, they were giving me gas money. And I did that for almost all of 85. And then in 86 is when I was in enough clubs in New York to work those at night, make enough to scratch a crappy rent, and study acting during the day. So that's what I did, okay. which was great. Because I burned out on the whole road thing kind of Sure. Early. Yeah, that's easy to do. Yeah, I didn't Especially like when it. you're the one behind the wheel. Yeah, but I mean even flying. Oh, really? I, I'm not a good flyer, and I just kind of burned out on, on that quick. I couldn't stand staying in the condos and working with other douchebags that you didn't get along with. I mean, there were a lot of guys that I became really good friends with. But that wasn't my thing, you know. I wanted yeah. to stay in New York City, do stand-up, study acting. So you you were in New York how long before you decided Los Angeles was What time you, is it? <laughs> it was, so um, L.A. was where you had to be. I'd say eight years, maybe nine, because I moved there in 85, and then I moved to L.A. in January 94. So it was like eight solid years. And the comedy boom, as it were, was kind of tapering off about that point. I mean, yeah. it kind of started to die like around 92, right? Exactly. Yeah. But I had been getting enough acting work. Mm-hmm. I had gotten some pilots for NBC and was getting like a stuff on soaps. I did a Law and Order. So, so, suddenly stuff was kind of coming my way. And, you know, I listened to other people. Oh, you got to move to L.A. You got to move to L.A. And I did. And for first few years, I kind of regretted it because I had more of a voice in New York. I was doing a lot of theater in New York. I moved out here and it just... An airbag opened on my career, you know what I mean? <laughs> I tried working the comedy clubs out here and realized being the clubs out here don't get along. It's it a different like, animal, isn't it? Yeah, I knew I was in trouble because the very first set I ever did at the Improv in L.A., I walked on stage and there were two nerdy guys sitting in front. And I looked down and I went, hey, guys, you look good. What, did Sears explode? And the audience went, <gasps> like that. Like I said, you know, I wanted to kill your children or eat your mother or something. And I said to myself, while I was on stage, I go, this is not going to be good. And it wasn't. I hated the improv. And uh, I worked uh, the comedy store for a mm-hmm. while. But I, I don't know. I just... The attitude was different. Something about the L.A. Yeah, it was a different kind of vibe. Were you able to start to figure out how to adjust your material to allow for the sort of change in... Altitude, I guess, um, or yeah, attitude? That's a, that's a good question, but I thought the change I would have had to make... Uh, first of all, I didn't want to make a change. Mm-hmm. I'd been funny my whole life. I wasn't going to come here and be told I'm not funny, you know what I mean? And I had a certain kind of point of view as a comic, and I wasn't going to change that. And what I would have had to change to would have been lame, and it wouldn't have been me. So right. I wasn't... I, I'd rather not work than, you know, go up there and do shit I don't want to do. Right. So I didn't. It didn't hurt me none, because I wound up doing pretty good anyway. So, you know, I got plenty of acting work. Well, that's good. Um, where along the way did you, had you started to make friends with uh, Ray Romano? <clears throat> well, I met Ray in New York in 86. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I met him at softball practice in Central Park for the improv. <laughs> okay. And I remember thinking that uh, finally Silver passed somebody who could hit. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, Ray's a great guy, and he's funny, and we just kind of hit it off, you know, and uh, he, you know, he hit and certainly helped me out. And I remember asking him once, going, hey, how can I ever pay you back? Because I had done, like, 20-something episodes on Everybody Loves Raymond. He got me a part. As in, Johnny. Uh, yeah, as Gianni. He got me a part in Mooseport, and I was opening for him, and, and I said to him, how do I, re- you know, repay you? 
And he reminded me that I forgot all about, that I had gotten him into the Comedy Cellar in New York. Oh, really? That was like one of his favorite clubs. Yeah. Because I don't know if you'd know anything about the club or Manny, the owner, the Israeli guy. He was like a father to us. One Saturday night, he was panicking. And he goes, man, Fulani, so-and-so canceled. We're short a comic. Do you know anybody? Can you recommend? I've tried everybody. I said, well, there's a new guy named Ray Romano down at the Improv. I go, he's pretty funny. He's a good guy. Call the Improv. So I called. Ray was there. I said, Ray, get your ass down here. They're short a comic and don't bomb. (laughs) And I had to leave because I had to go to another club, either Caroline's or one of the other clubs. And turned out he went down. Obviously, he didn't bomb. He was killed. (laughs) They loved him. And I didn't even remember, but that's the kind of guy Ray is. He remembered. Yeah, he remembered, you know. He got him in, and he certainly paid me back. Well, that's great. Um, most recently, um, uh, at least certainly helping you by uh, uh, writing a role sort of based on your nickname. That's right. Uh, Manfro. That's right. Uh, and for the last two seasons of what is really a great show and apparently is not coming back. Mm, well. Unless things change. Yeah, you're talking about men of a certain men age. Men of a certain right. age. Were Would it you... kill you to mention the no, name I was, of the show? No, I was getting what are you to it. I was building up to it. I was building up to it. It's not like it. you're looking at notes. you got nothing in front of you. <laughs> men of a certain age, where you played Manfro, <laughs> right. your common nickname. Uh, Ray's Bookie. A brilliantly Ray's Bookie, show, yeah. man. It's just... Really? Yeah. Very good show about uh, three guys that are at men of a certain age. I mean, they're about That's to right. turn 50. Uh, it was Ray and Scott Bakula. Right. Andre and Brower. Andre Brower. And you play... Ray Romano's bookie, and Ray has a gambling problem. Gambling issue. But it, it turned out it was, you know, we met, I was his bookie. Yes. But we had, like, this odd friendship as the show developed, you know what I mean? It was like these two guys you would never think would be friends. And like, and my character was kind of a lonely guy that couldn't trust anybody because he was a bookie, and people were always bullshitting him about paying. And I just saw something in Ray's character, Joe, that I liked, and it became a really... Odd but interesting friendship that six people saw. <laughs> anyway, would it kill you to turn on your TV? Stop watching the Kardashians for five minutes. So how, how did that character develop in terms of Ray and Mike Royce adding it, the, the co-creator of the show, adding it to the, to the mix, the Manfro character? Well, they, they had the character in mind, and they wanted me to play it because it was based pretty much on me, because they knew me as a person, knew my sense of humor, but they also had a, their own vision of this character. Right. So it was like the melding of the two, their vision of what they wanted, because it was me, but tweaked. Manfro did things that I personally would never do. Sure. So it was a really good melding of those two things, plus as we were shooting it, they were so good at allowing me to make a suggestion, or uh, changing a thing, or improvising, or something. so it just turned out to be... Great, that six people saw. <laughs> I'm starting to get pissed, Hershon. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things that, uh, it, this has happened to several people I know, where a role has been re- written specifically for you, with you in mind, by the creators of the show, and yet the, the channel still needs to have you read for the part. Yes, I had to. On look. tape. Right. I had to audition for myself. <laughs> and that's got, got to be just a weird kind of pressure. It, it was a weird kind of pressure because, yeah, you're right. Number one, you go, well, this is written for me. If I blow this, what kind of, you know, how bad am I? But on the flip side of that, how often do you get to, because Ray and Mike Royce wanted me to do this role, I actually rehearsed 
with Ray for like three days. Then uh, we will put on tape our good friend Tom Caltabiano, who's mm-hmm. a terrific filmmaker. We shot it at his house. It was lit. I mean, it was beautiful, and it looked really good. And from re- how often do you get to rehearse with the lead? Yeah. So um, TNT cast, they loved it, but yet they still had to find something that was wrong. You know wow. what they said? Huh. The head of casting said, we liked John a lot. But he looks too much like Scott Bakula. <laughs> I'm going. You got to be kidding me! And then Ray immediately went, "Well, we'll, we'll he'll grow a beard or a mustache, or we'll comb his hair." So that's why my hair is like slicked back oh, and it kind okay. of made me a little charactery looking, because they thought I looked wow. too much like Scott Bakula. Yeah, <laughs> which is a compliment, in a, in a, I guess. In a way, you know what I mean? Or an insult if you're Scott Bakula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott's not too thrilled with it, but I certainly was enjoying it. I've been going to Star Trek conventions now as him. Um, so that, it just goes to show you, you know, there's always an obstacle in the way, even when you think, there's how could this possibly not be my role? Right. I still had to jump through nine hoops to get it. Yeah. But it turned out to be pretty good. Um, my character tested almost, the, I think, the highest at the testing of the pilot. That's amazing. Yeah, so I remember you mentioned I'm very that. proud of that. That's great. You're supposed to act like I never mentioned it before because well, we were interviewing. I know, but it's my show, so I have to act like I have known everyone I interviewed. Oh, my God. You'll fix it in post. Yeah, no problem. Um, let's go back a little bit. What was, in terms of your... Con- okay, daddy, daddy. <laughs> too far, oh, too we went far. Back too far. Okay, mama, mama. <laughs> Still too it far. It daddy loves me. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, too wrong. Okay. Too wrong. <laughs> All right, we'll edit that one out. <laughs> um, <laughs> growing up, did you have... Uh, comedy icons, records you listened to, or people that you admired that were in comedy? I mean, was it an interested? The ones that are in, were in comedy yeah. were, yeah, I had two. Um, George Carlin, mm-hmm. and, you know, Class Clown, that whole sure. album. And uh, and also, when I was really young, 10, 11 years old, I used to see Rickles on yeah. the Mike Douglas show. Yes. You know? And he made me laugh. And I remember he made my father laugh, too, which... You know, you idolize your father. Right. So when I see my father laughing his ass over at Rodney Dangerfield, suddenly I like Rodney Dangerfield. But those wound up being two of my favorites, I'd have to say. So it was Rodney Dangerfield, Don Rickles, and Carlin were my three favorites. But also I I, uh, admired Robert Klein a lot, too, Mm -hmm. because I thought he wrote some really clever stuff. But people in comedy, those are the ones. And and did, like... Because you you do have a, an act that uh, you do, I have an act you, you do uh, s- sort of an ins- not really insulting but you have a uh, an edge to you yeah I have an edge and I like to do crowd stuff but I try to avoid the hey where you're from what do you do yeah you know what I mean I try to pick out something about somebody and then do a little character thing off that you know what I mean. Yeah. As, and even the thing I was telling you about uh, before, about the plexiglass thing. Oh, on, yeah. At, I would uh, pretend Brad Garrett. Yeah, Brad club. Garrett, had, uh, his club had a plexiglass thing that hung behind you, but you had room to get behind it. And I would pretend it was a soundproof booth, so I'd right. go behind it and talk about the audience. Like, So that's the kind of audience, edgy stuff I like to do. So how did you develop your ability to do crowd work? Because it's it's a skill that not a lot of comics have. I mean, unless they have improv training uh, or some sort of um, background where they have dealt interactively with an audience, it doesn't come easy. Well, 
I'd have to say, at the risk of sounding pompous or something, it was just a gift given mm. to me. I'd always made my friends laugh. We'd always done kind of improv goofs with each other that we didn't even know were improvs. We would just pick up a cup, and one guy would say one thing, the other guy would grab the cup, and, you know, uh, that's the kind of stuff we would do. So when I got to stage and realized... Well, when I first started doing stand-up, I wrote jokes. Right. And I would go on, and I would do them rote right off the paper. Some got laughs, and... But the first few times I went on, I was it wasn't happening. I was kind of bombing. I was getting frustrated. I knew I was funny. So one night I'm on late and I do something and a guy yells out. He goes, uh, you suck. So rather than, you know, getting mad or something, I, I just said in a real calm voice, I go, you know what? I can't argue with you. I said, you're, you're right. I do suck. I said, I'm trying to be funny. It's kind of not happening. I get it. I said, but if you yell it out again, I'm going to break a chair over your fucking head. <laughs> and that got a huge laugh. And then I went, oh, okay, I get it. And you kind of go full circle. You start at a certain point. It's like going around a clock. You're getting better and better, and you're getting a handle on it. Then when you get good, you realize you're yourself. Right. I'll you're who you yeah. were in school or with your friends. But you can't just walk up and be that. Yeah, you I, have to learn how to do that on a stage under a light at nine forty-five. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've I've been around booking comedy for so long that uh, you know I, I noticed this the same paradigm where a comic will kill the very first time they go up because they have no expectations of what's supposed to happen, and then I like to say that it takes them three years to get back to where they were that first. You time. are hitting the nail right on the head because they start to try to deconstruct what. Why did that get laughs? What's happening? And they get so caught up in their own underwear that they can't kind of figure it out until they finally relax and it finally comes back around to like you said exactly. they, they find themselves. Again. It's funny that you said three years because. I think it takes three years for you to really start scratching the surface. Five years before you're good. And then maybe like ten years where you can handle anything. I feel like I can handle any situation. Even if I don't do well, it wouldn't be a big deal. And I would still get myself through it or whatever. When I first started and I'd bomb, I'd be up all night beating myself up. You're horrible. You're, you're this. You're that. Uh, you just... Yeah, there's a there's a dynamic I like to call making your act bulletproof. And because you didn't like traveling so much, I think that bulletproofness, because, um, you know, I was running the club in Seattle and actually the same time you were in Florida, uh, between 82 and 85, I was in Seattle running the Comedy Underground. And people like Jerry Seinfeld were coming through headlining the club and Paul Reiser and Harry Anderson. Never heard of him. <laughs> and... And they were traveling a lot. And I think they got bulletproof faster because they were exposing their act to a broader audience that's across the point. country. You that's know, a, if you're just if you're just on one of the two coasts, you're kind of limiting yourself in terms of will somebody in Cleveland get what I'm saying and do I care that they get what I'm saying? That's a good point. Uh, my thought off of that is number one, funny's funny, whether you're in Cleveland, New York, sure. Seattle, whatever. But even though I didn't do a lot of traveling, like from New York to Cleveland or Seattle, I did all those one-nighters, and that kind of bulletproofs you. Oh, because sure. I did some of the shittiest places that were not conducive to funny. 
I mean, when you are in a perfect comedy club acoustically, the ceiling's right, the sound's right, the lighting, the seating, everything's perfect, comedy's still hard. But when you're in a bar where people are talking and a game is on and no one gives you shit, that's a skill all in itself that yeah. you have to learn. That's what weeds people out, the way they go, I can't take this anymore. Or you just somehow make it through. Yeah. Somehow you make it through. I remember I did a gig... In Hoboken, New Jersey, with Tony Camacho. I yeah, Tony. I know the name, yeah. And he drove me out to the gig, and we walk in, and the front of the gig, it was a bar, but it had a room in the back where they did comedy. We walk in, the bar, pool, first thing we see is a fist fight over the pool table. <laughs> and I look at him, and he looks at me, and I go, oh boy, I go, you got the money, right? <laughs> so then we walk in to take a look at the room, and it's completely carpeted. The floors, the walls, the wall behind the so stage. It sucks Every, up everything. Yeah, everything's carpeted. I walk in and go, well, everything's carpeted. I go, the sound is probably going to be horrible. So I was emceeing that show. And he introduced me, and I go up. And I go, hey, how you doing tonight? Uh, welcome to whatever, the shithole inn or whatever it was. And I see, silhouetted in the back of the room, I see a guy stand up doing a throwing motion, and I see a beer bottle coming at me. <laughs> And I just turn and duck out of the way, and the bottle hits the carpeted wall behind me. And doesn't break. And falls right to the ground. <laughs> and I go, to, I turn to the audience. Instead of going, hey, who threw that? I just turn to the audience and went, that's why it's carpeted. <laughs> and it kind of broke the ice, oh, and it went well. From the, but it's a good thing I saw that guy, because that bottle would have hit me square in the wow. head. Yeah, it would have hit me square in the head. And that was before you even really got your act cooking, so it wasn't like he was mad at you. He no, was just, it was just to... that was the place. You yeah. know? But this is in what we were talking about, about building your chops up and becoming... Yeah. You have to go... If you want to be good as a stand-up, you have to go through that. It's just the way it is. You yeah. know what I mean? It's the hardest thing to do of all the arts, in my opinion. You have to make people laugh, and there's immediate response. Either they're laughing or they're not laughing. There's no gray area, you yeah. know what I mean? It's not like a movie where you can discuss it, or music where you can listen to it four or five times and it grows on you. Yeah. You're the funny right away, or you're not. And you learn that. And you can't, you can rehearse a play, you can do your comedy in a mirror, but that's not the same as the dynamic with the energy there, the audience and stuff. So yeah. it's the hardest of all, in my opinion. That's part one of our interview with John Manfrelotti, part two in just a moment after we listen to She Gave to Me, a song from Think of Sex, the album by Mark Cohen and his band, which John Manfrelotti is playing guitar with. When I was young, I never thought I'd find that one to give me everything I needed and more. When I found her, I knew for sure I'd found that.
become a kind of a, a refuge for you, I guess. Yes. You, you, you play guitar. Wait, let me get a dictionary. R-E... <laughs> How do you spell feud? It, it's like refrigerator only. <laughs> it's like refrigerator, not as heavy. <laughs> uh, yes, I've been playing guitar since I'm 16, and it is my refuge, my savior. My, I always tell people when they go, hey, do you see a shrink? I go, no, my shrink's got six strings on it. That's so, nice, you know, yeah. that's, yeah. But I've been doing a lot more music. Yeah, in uh, fact, we're going to, uh, hopefully we'll be playing uh, at least one of your songs right. uh, the same episode we're playing this interview. Excellent, because so we'll we do music with Mark Cohen, a very funny comic also from New York. A yeah. real funny songwriter, good singer. You can even go on YouTube for the Mark Cohen band, because we've played live around yeah. L.A. There's a few tunes up there that you can look at. Now, is that something you would ever want to do? I mean, although you play gigs, is that something you would do professionally, like a, a lot? Or it, it really is a refuge and a way to get away from uh, doing all these other things? I don't know about that. I, I, I think that would have to be something that would like I would stumble into. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's why I still love music so much, because I've never tried to do it professionally, because I heard it's just as bad as you know acting or stand-up. <laughs> So I don't know, but I, all I know is we've been enjoying it so much, doing the gigs, writing music, recording stuff, editing. That I'm just going to let that take care of itself mm-hmm. right now. I'm not going to go, yeah, this, I'm going to become a songwriter or our band's going to be a hit. You know, it's like I'm getting up there in age, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm beginning to think my first big break's going to be my hip. <laughs> can you add I a, can edit can that you, out or can, sweeten it somehow. Can you add a... Drum rim shop? Yes, or me laughing. I'll try and do a separate ice. Well, don't hurt yourself. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's a lot of people who still believe, and it's true, I guess, on certain levels, that that following that comedy path is what you need to do to get on television. In fact, I just uh, interviewed Fred Stoller today. And that's what he said flat out. That's why he came to Los Angeles, was he really had no intention of really becoming a comic other than the fact it was... To get on television. Well, I've seen his act. <laughs> Only kidding, Freddie. I love you. Um, so, kind of pull the curtain back on that. It's not a fallacy, but on the sort of reality of what that's like. Coming here to say, I'm going to break into this business by, you know, being a comic. Well, that's a really interesting and good question. Um, as far as answering the second part about coming here. Mm-hmm. But I started doing stand-up because I thought it would be a good vehicle to get to acting. I always wanted to do acting, especially in movies. It right. seems the thing I've wanted the most has been the hardest to get to. Hmm. But I thought that stand-up would be a good vehicle for me because I always deep down thought I was good at it. And, you know, I started sort of at the boom, you know, when that was already in swing. But as far as moving here and thinking I'm going to make it as an actor, I never had that kind of attitude because I moved here 
at 40. I mean, who moves to L.A. at 40? Right. You know what I mean? So it's not like it, maybe I would have had that attitude if I moved here at 20 or 25, going, yeah, I'm going to take this town by storm. Right. But I, you know, I already had 10 years of stand-up under my belt, and I just thought it was the next logical step because I was getting acting work in New York. Right. You know, they don't have really a pilot season in New York. Well, at least not, they didn't then. So I said, well, I'll come to L.A. Most of my friends had moved here. and So that's what I did. I, I never really thought I was going to take it by storm. Maybe but, I should have. But does it open doors? Getting on stage at the Improv or the Comedy Store at the Laugh Factory? Yes. Are talent people still cruising those cr- clubs looking for new talent? Yeah, but they're looking for the young 20-somethings. You know what I mean? But yeah, that is a good way to get people, even in New York, you know, if you... Come and see my stand-up. It's a good way to showcase yourself rather than just a picture and a resume or a tape or whatever. They right. can see you live. It's, I'm sure it's still a good thing. Yeah. The only way I do that now is if I wrote a specific kind of show, you know, these one-man shows or these mm-hmm. plays or something where, uh, you know, I'm telling a journey or a story. But, like I said, I don't work the clubs that much. So I to call somebody and say, hey, why don't you come and see me do a you know, a spot at the improv on Wednesday. Then you got to call the improv and say, remember me? Yeah, you know what? I don't want to <laughs> fucking do that. I don't give a shit anymore. Every, everyone's an asshole. Like, can you edit that out? I no. mean, everyone's no, a In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to re- have my... No, I'm sorry. I'm going to have my producer actually reproduce that and play it throughout, <laughs> throughout the interview. Really? I think if I was a drink, I'd be a bitters and soda. <laughs> anyway, I... Uh, um, but you do get to perform live because uh, yes. Ray Romano is not just a friend. He's a, he's a, an employer. That's true. Uh, and so you, you travel around with him and also yes. Brad Garrett. Right. I work uh, open for Ray. We work Vegas a lot. Or we'll go on tours, you know, five, six, eight city tours. And, uh, or with Ray and Brad. Or with Ray and Kevin, Kevin James. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm still in the stand-up world. and But that's it. That's almost like a completely different world. How? Because that's a, tell, tell us how that's different. It's a built-in fantastic gig. Ray has obviously gotten to the mountain. People love him. They love his stand-up. The audience that comes to see him, they're there specifically to see Ray. They're fans, you know what I mean? And they're fans of Everybody Loves Raymond. So they're instantly fans of me because they recognize Gianni, the friend, or they recognize Manfro, the bookie. So it's such a good... And we're working the best venues. We're treated like kings because Ray's, you know, he's major league. So on that respect, it's everything that all those shit gigs you worked up to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now you're getting the the red carpet treatment, the great rooms, everything's comped and, you know... And I feel like 25 years of eating shit, you've earned it, you know? Yeah. So it, it, I, I love doing them. I love doing them. It's, and, and being the opener where I like do 15 minutes or 20 or whatever it is, I can go out and just put the pedal to the metal. You know what I mean? I do my strongest bits yeah. with energy, and I am killing. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal gig where I don't have to dodge beer bottles and carpeted rooms, you know what I mean, or talk over an entire audience talking, you know, so it's it's fantastic. That's great. Um, you know, we were talking at dinner tonight about, and I'm baffled by the Hollywood system as long as I've been in it as a writer and everything and seen how it goes down, but 
you just came off of doing two seasons of Men of a Certain Age, and you had, you know, all those appearances on uh, Everyone Loves Raymond, and yet Hollywood is not knocking on your door. It's like, what does it take to get the attention of executives and casting people and things like that, do you think? I think they have to just look at you and see some thing that's going to break out and be a money maker like and that's why they, I think they're looking for the 20 something they see the potential or if you're already an established name that they know is going to be a sure draw on money they're not willing to take a chance or at least I haven't found that yet to take a chance on someone my age that yeah we'll get behind you and I'm not asking for anything I'm just asking for someone to believe in me and right. you know, get me an audition or something I'm not, you know, I've earned everything I've had, and I'm not afraid to earn. I'm not asking for a handout. But I guess they, because even when the, some of the meetings I've had, it's like, well, they start in with big names for movies or funneling down to TV. So guys on your level get pushed down mm-hmm. even lower. And, you know, I don't know how to answer that other than you just got to keep hanging in. Yeah. Because I always thought I could be a dramatic actor, and when I finally got a shot, on men of a certain age, sure. some people are going, "Hey, this guy, this guy can act." Yeah, in fact, it it got you the yeah, the it got me Mad a Mad Men. They saw me. I went in and read for Matt Weiner, and the, I was lucky enough to be put on that great show. But yet, that next step has been baffling to me. You know what I mean? I think after the work I did and how highly critically acclaimed the show was, that I would remain in the game. You got to go right back to the drawing board. It's frustrating. Yeah. Freaking thing on my wall from the Wall Street Journal interviewing me, for God's sake. But what, what are you going to do? It's just the nature of the beast. You yeah. know what I mean? You can't... What am I going to do? Hang myself? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Can you mind kicking the chair out <laughs> while I... Now, I'm going to be masturbating <laughs> while I'm hanging, but just look the other... <laughs> no, I'm... Ugh. Oh, I can edit that in. Now, yeah. <laughs> can you sweeten it? <laughs> Leave the cum sound. <laughs> what, what about what about um, what about writing yourself a role? Why don't you shut the fuck up? How about that? Wait a minute, that wasn't the answer I was looking for. I mean, we hear about that actors uh, who you know end up writing a, a, a vehicle for themselves. It's true. You're right. Uh, I mean, is that of interest to you? Have you done it? Uh, I have to be honest with you. No one's listening to this, right? No, I um, don't think so. I don't know if I ever had the discipline to be that kind of writer. Mm. That's what always I always admired about writers. How like they can me, like sit, me. Like you like and me. many other writers that I've met. How they can sit down at the blank page and create. I'm great in a collaborative situation because I can run with ideas. But I guess it goes back to even when I was a kid in school and never did homework and was not disciplined. I think it caught up to me in terms of the writing. Because all my stand-up writing was stuff I created on stage, improvising, where either I was taping the set or I remembered it and wrote it down or somebody said, hey, you should do that as a bit, and then I honed it. There's very few jokes where I sat down and wrote them. So in answering your question, I guess I wasn't disciplined enough or I wasn't so blown away by an idea I had for myself that I said, this is it, this, I have to do this. I just, you know, 
So you you have you've never been that that school of comic who you know sits there with the yellow pad and just sort of you know sits down there for hours and tries to think of you know all these lines and permutations of jokes and things like that. You just kind of let it happen organically. Yeah, I never did that because two reasons. Number one, I was like we mentioned earlier, I always thought I was blessed to be very quick witted. Right. And the other thing was, you have to look at the guitar again. If I have a choice to sit down for an hour or rack my brain about trying to come up with a project to write or to sit there for an hour and practice playing the guitar, either scales or playing a song, learning a song or writing a song that I have in my head. I found myself later in life wanting to do that more. So in terms of the business and acting or creating something myself, obviously I've hurt myself in that respect. Well, maybe. But... um, who knows? Maybe, you know, I'll continue to get lucky. Do you have uh, $5? <laughs> I'd be happy to pay you back three. I'm kidding. Uh, now, uh, I don't know that you really listen to podcasts, um, that you really have found the world of podcasts. It's still relatively well, new. It's new to me. I'm not a big technical computer guy. Um, but there's probably some parallels in that there's a lot of people that are getting into it that, A, they're, you know, there's podcasts like Mark Marin right. and his, you know, what, very good what the it. fuck. Who's you know he he was a radio announcer he was a, he was you know he's done comedy for twenty right. years uh, and he's got a reputation and then there's you know guys sitting in Chicago that have never been on stage they've never done stand up or improv or sketch and they're sitting around a living room just bullshitting and talking about you know popular culture or whatever and that's their podcast and can't argue with that man sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not but they you know they put it up every week and they've got and listeners, they're out there and they're out there. But is there anything from your experience starting out that you could talk to us in terms of sort of a fledgling podcaster, just in terms of what sort of discipline does it take just to to do the work? Not so much writing, but just doing the work of producing something, whether it's a five-minute set or a half-hour podcast. I think it all comes out of the passion you feel when you're actually doing it. You know what I mean? When I'm on stage making a room full of people laugh, there's no better feeling in the world. And if you know that that's the end, then that's the discipline that'll keep you going. Sure, it's hard to start a podcast, I'd imagine, and how do I do it? But when the microphones are set up and you're enjoying yourself and you listen to it and hear, oh, that works, or you get feedback from somebody, hey, that thing you did really works, that in itself will snowball, and I think that'll keep you going. Yeah. Unless you are the type of disciplined person, like we were speaking of a minute ago about writing, going, I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing it every day for an hour, and you know, it becomes a, a routine, a, a chore, or whatever. Yeah. But I think it's the passion of doing it and knowing that you can do it, and then when you finally get the feedback and either laughter or a critique or what, then that'll keep you going. Because if you don't see an end or you don't have, you know, I really know I can do a podcast. And if you don't have that, then yeah. you're not going to do it. You're going to do it once because if it doesn't go right the first five or 10 or 20 times, then you're going to fold and go, ah, I can't do this. This sucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, po- I mean, podcasters, you can see that if you go to iTunes, there's, 
you know, the, the landscape is littered with podcasts that has four episodes, and they they did you know three of them in in two thousand nine and never went on again. Yeah, either it was them or no one listened, but for some reason. They didn't stay with it. And I think that's what keeps everybody going, whether you're an actor, a stand-up, a musician. If you don't believe you can do it or want to really do it, then you're not going to do it. So anyone listening to this who's plugging in a podcast, just if you think you can do it, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. You know what I mean? There's so many know-it-alls who tell you you can't do it. You know what I mean? uh, Casting people told me, you're not a dramatic actor. You know, bullshit, I'm not. Just because you say I'm not. So yeah. if you have that, then you, you're going to be fine. That's all you need, you know? The rest will take care of itself, unless you're horrible. <laughs> then I would suggest uh, putting a rope, getting on a chair, but still <laughs> masturbating right before you jump off. That was the cum sound right there. John Manfrelotti, thank you for joining us. This was great fun. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll check in with you later. Beautiful. There's John Manfrelotti. Hopefully Hollywood will catch a clue. We'll get to see a lot more of him in the near future on the screen. Uh, Normally we would bring Succotash to a close. We've been going for a little over an hour, but uh, you know, it's the holidays and we haven't been playing a whole lot of clips the last couple of episodes, so I'm going to play a few more clips for you before we get out of here. And uh, here's a clip from the Gentleman's Club, a podcast I've been following and also interacting with its host, Caleb Bacon, for a while. It's a mixed bag of comedy and interviews with porn stars, sports people, almost anything else that Caleb decides goes into the next episode. Here he's gotten himself into a conversation with adult film actress Randy Wright. It was totally, yeah, it was a show called Totally Busted, and I had seen that show before, and I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. My agent called me and told me I was. they wanted to audition me. I got really excited and I already mm-hmm. like knew about the show. So it was really easy for me when they gave me like the bit to read. Everybody was laughing. So I was like, oh, I think I did a good job. And then I got contracted. So it was fun. And that was a really fun show to work on. It was really fun. And what was Totally Busted? I missed it. Totally Busted. It's like punked, except for you're getting punked by Playboy girls. And it's like way more embarrassing. How did stuff. I not see that show? That sounds amazing. <laughs> it is. Well, it still p- plays on Playboy because their okay. network is like shit now. So. <laughs> So you could probably still watch reruns. I get like text messages all the time like, oh, I just saw you on Playboy TV. I'm like, that was like six years ago, but right on. What was like a example of a prank you would pull? They have like one of their friends, they set up their friend basically, and they come in on the show and they think that they're doing like an odd job for the day. Like they think they're getting paid to do like an odd job, like be an assistant on a show. We had set up the studio as like, um, we were shooting, um, a music video and the guy thinks that he's coming in playing an assistant for um, the music video and so they just tell him when he goes on like you need to do whatever the the rock stars tell you <laughs> to do like there's no like if fans or brats don't question them like whatever they say you do that's the rock your star job would be played by a guy Right. It was like a band. There was like a okay. rock band and they like dress in like 80s clothes, like skin tight pants. Like it was like very, <laughs> it was very funny if you saw it. So um, basically we're <clears throat> like behind the scenes and even though it's all being filmed, the, the assistant that's the John or whatever you want to call him <laughs> um, is doesn't know he's being filmed this whole time. So he comes in and they ask the assistant to come in and bring him water. And he's like fucking all he's they're like fake fucking us like in the 
backstage or whatever. And so he's coming in to bring water and they're like, can you rub um, oil on their tits? Like, you know, like stuff to make them feel very uncomfortable, like that they wouldn't normally do in, in a job. And um, and it's funny to see like their facial expressions. And then we end up getting them to like suck a fake dick and like, you know, just like and then it ends up like. OK, I like the them. rubbing the oil on the tits part. <laughs> suck a fake dick. You lost me a little bit. <laughs> Well, they, they're supposed to do stuff that's uncomfortable for them. It makes them look really stupid. So, And then at the end of the show, they find out that they've been totally busted on Playboy TV. And it's really fucking funny. Does Ashton Kutcher pop out at all? <laughs> no, we do. Oh, okay. <laughs> so were you like the person whose tits were being oiled down? By- yeah, we play one of the girls. There's like a couple girls. Yeah. Um, like Mary Carey was on the show, Jessica James. They have like a couple different girls that are like the main hosts. Mm-hmm. And every day we go in and we there's always something different. Um, That's like a great gig. It is. It's really fun because it's not... It was six years ago, but... <laughs> I think, I don't know, my math is terrible, but but um, yeah, it, it's a really fun show and it's really funny too. And I'm pretty sure it's still on the TV. So if you want to watch it, go for it. You're going to order it on Amazon too. <laughs> That's the Gentleman's Club with Caleb Bacon. You can get yourself more Gentleman's Club over at gentlemensclubpodcast.com. Or on iTunes, and there's plenty to listen to. Caleb's logged in over 128 episodes. I've struck up a bit of a rapport with Jabs, the man behind the controls at Australia's The D-Head Factor. In fact, he interviewed me on a recent D-Head Factor episode, if you want to go sniff around for that. And the only thing I've really played from their show before has been kind of a rambling commercial they threw together. So here's an actual clip now from The D-Head Factor. Have you ever taken anything from a supermarket that you've never paid for? I was going to ask if they took drugs in. <laughs> have you ever taken drugs? Yeah. That wasn't uh, the question. No, have you ever taken drugs that, have you ever, uh, besides tonight? Have you ever taken anything from a hardware store? Possibly. Uh, mate. <laughs> May fell in my pocket. Might have fallen in your pocket. I've never... No, May fell in the back I, of the year. I took something. Might have even been on the desk and they didn't scan it and just... Besides to uh, not bring it to their attention. So technically, That's their not, fault. I put it on the desk. They put it on the desk. I put Does it on it their count? desk. $150 Santa. I put it on the desk to be scanned. If they missed it. You do that hey, all the time. At, it's not my uh, fault. A hardware shop it's that not I my fault. mention. But yeah, don't mention, that, don't that... mention the hardware store. It's all right. But I only recently did that the other day. You've done it twice in the last <coughs> two visits. Okay, I do it every time, but... Uh, Let's move on. But can I, I just say, is it, am I at fault like today at a, at a supermarket? If you're cook, cooking crystal meth in the back of it, yes. <laughs> and they scanned one thing and I had two of them and I didn't say I had two and I think the, you know, and I took it and I didn't pay for one. Is that stealing? No, it isn't because you trust that they're able to do their job confidently. And if it's they true. don't do it. That's their fault. fault. What if I saw him do it, not do it on purpose? <laughs> what you're about to say, what if I saw him masturbating? Yes. <laughs> then he's probably going to give you whatever you want out of the store for free. <laughs> he could have given me something else. If he did it on purpose, he was giving you the eye because he loved you and your haircut. Obsession. Oh, Obsession. yes, everyone. I had a haircut today. Yeah, because the, the podcast people can hear that. I know, but it's exciting. Or see that for that matter. Yeah, okay. They can hear it, they can't see it. They can't see it. <clears throat> I, um, I, took, I went to a hardware store. I borrowed a well. I didn't borrow a hose. I, I bought a hose, yep. but I added the attachments to the hose, so you don't lose them. So I don't lose them. So you don't lose them. Oh, so, didn't have to carry them. so I didn't have yeah. to carry them yeah. to, to the desk. Yes, yeah. I put that the whole lot, the, the hose, lot, yeah. the attachment, yeah. on the counter to be yeah. scanned. It was. It had its own little scan tag. 
Yeah. She didn't scan it. Yeah. I, I paid still... my money. Yeah. I walked out the door. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Nothing happened. But when I got home, to my surprise, she missed it. Oh, when you similar got story. When, when I got home. Similar story. When similar, I got home. Similar story. Went in there to buy a piece of galvanised steel. Really? Yes. Put it together as a shed so that way I could take it home. <laughs> okay. Similar story. Yeah. <laughs> Took the shed home. She only charged me for the galvanised steel. One piece. One piece. Similar story. Just the bag of screws. illegal. Just the bag of screws. Because it was, I just needed to carry it to the car. <laughs> it was just easier than carrying the sheets. We should try that. <laughs> Let's assemble. We'll go there to the hardware store. Assemble. Yeah. It is actually kind of stealing. Just get the barcode on one side. Ah, that's $10. Thank you. Yeah. That's a whole fucking wall. <laughs> There's $10. You have the intention. Uh, can I get someone to give me a hand and lift this up? <laughs> what do you mean I had the intention? You no. have the intention of deceiving. No. no. Trying to get away with it. No. If it worked good, if it didn't, then you would have paid for it. How, did, how do you prove in, uh, intention of deceiving? Well, he, he was put, trying he to. He knew him. Oh, and as if he didn't, he put the freaking end. That on. would be illegal. And he knows Josh doesn't that do that. He probably went on purpose to the female <laughs> at the hardware store <laughs> because generally they have got no idea what. Exactly right. Bought. And it was a young female that looked new. So, oh, and pretty. No, she was pretty. So there was other motives. No, she was fucking she was ugly. So she was ugly. ugly chick because you flash your eyes at them. And, and no, but it. I did go to the female that looked like she had fucking no idea, and See? she didn't. So you're admitting that you had the intention of no, no. But I put it on there because it would, it would take up more room in my hands. I only bought the one yeah, thing, but yeah. but yeah. I walked around the store looking yeah. to buy another item. I didn't. Yeah. I walked out with the hose. Yeah. And the attachments. Yes. You realise though. What happened? Be honest. Did you realise at the checkout that she no. had? No. <laughs> yeah, you're lying. He's I laughing. had the biggest grin on my face as soon as, as soon as I handed the money over. Yeah. I've got you, silly bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then walked out without saying a thing. Is that wrong? No. 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 <laughs> it's like my shed story all over again. Gavin, I still. It's not my fault if it comes prefabricated. I went outside, bought some sausages. It's all good. <laughs> I had money left charity, over. Yeah. You, know, it's all good. you bought a sausage. Well, they were selling sausages. <laughs> they had you a know, sausage sizzle. You felt guilty. It's karma. The D-Head Factor from Australia. If you want more D-Head Factor, then I suggest you get over to the D-Head Factor tumblr.com or just check them out on iTunes uh, that is going to do it almost for us for Succotash uh, holiday edition episode 16 but first a uh, little burst o durst before we're gone for good just as Bob Duca gave us his Christmas wish list on the way in here's uh, another wish list from Will Durst on the way out see you next time remember to pass the Succotash when you get done here Hey guys, Will Durst here to say bah humbug, everybody. I imagine that sentiment is being echoed by at least a few of you familiar with the soft, dark underbelly of this happiest time of the year. Those of us who have been washed over by the gushing holiday faucet of red and green greed and are dreading the repurposed solstice celebration as it drips down the gutter of melancholy, revealing the regurgitated fruitcake of gloom and despair. 
Wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. Then again, what the hell? Pass a cookie and another glass of nog and go easy in the nutmeg and heavy in the brandy, mister, because my Christmas spirit is still alive. Barely. And to honor all you brave and steadfast consumers who have set new shopping records in your patriotic quest to sink heavily into debt to honor the birth of that Jewish hippie kid, allow me to offer up to the most deserving of us my annual scathingly incisive yet always trenchant Will Durst's 2011 Christmas gift wish list. For Newt Gingrich, who admits he says anything that flies into his head, a tiny West African hummingbird. For Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, the AFL-CIO's Organizer of the Year Award. For the East Coast, who whimpered for weeks after both a tiny earthquake and a slight brushing from a near hurricane, a 12-month supply of chill pills. For American philatelists, a brand new Barack Obama stamp that won't stick to anything. And one honoring Mitt Romney that encourages people to spit on the wrong side. For Speaker of the House John Boehner, a gift certificate to Kaiser Permanente, good for one surgical procedure to remove that unsightly Tea Party growth from his back. For the Penn State University Athletic Department, Harry Potter's Invisibility Cloak. For President Obama, a continuing series of ill-timed principled stands by the Republican House. For Rick Perry, Michelle Bachman, John Huntsman, et al., prestigious offers from various universities to become deans so they can leave this race with a semblance of dignity. For Donald Trump, a muzzle and detailed instructions on how to install it with rivets. And for all the rest of us, a reality TV show called Celebrity Russian Roulette starring the Kardashians, with the winner forever to be known as The Kardashian. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. Happy Merry, everybody. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes and even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com or just pick up that phone and give Suckatash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash.